Welcome to Money Talks. Uh, this is a very special edition because we announce our person slash persons of the year. This is something we talk about all year because we evaluate people and groups who are really doing stuff that benefits all of us, benefits our freedom, benefits democracy. You know, in the past, we've had past winners like Dr. Brian Day. I mean, nobody has done more in the service of patient care, in the uh, championing patients' rights than Dr. Brian Day. Uh, We've also had Lindsay Shepard. I just love this one going back a few years because she was a graduate student and she took on the censorship establishment directly at Sir Wilfrid Laurier. So I say the list is a long one here. I look forward to announcing it in just a few minutes. But we also have Don Vialo, who is uh, arguably the cyclical and seasonality expert on the markets in Canada. And it's really straightforward. I want to know if there's such a thing as a Christmas rally, but I also want to know the bigger context. What happens in the fourth year of a presidential cycle? Are there patterns that emerge consistently, historically, that can help guide us with our investments? Also, I'm going to ask him straightforward. Hey, why is he calling 2024 the year of gold? Well, we'll ask him that, as I say. But we also have Victor. I've got Michael. I've got Ozzy Jurek. So the list is a long one, plus a great goofy award. Oh, I love my, and you know what? I like all of it because I've got a good quote of the week and you want to hear my shocking stat. But first, I talk a lot about the increasing attacks on free speech as not only the foundation of individual freedom, but come on, it's a key pillar of economic prosperity. But judging by some of the responses I get, there are a lot of people who don't seem to understand the correlation between freedom and our standard of living. I mean, they really don't get it. They want to know why a show primarily talking about the impact of economic, financial, investment issues on our standard of living is talking about individual freedoms like free speech. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, where have they been? I mean, how about looking at the standard of living and lifestyles of people who live in North Korea versus South Korea? Or come on, back to the fall of the Berlin Wall? Well, the difference in living standards between East and West Germany or the vast difference in the former Soviet Union compared to the U.S. I mean, the correlation between freedom and economic well-being is blatant. But you know what? Despite an avalanche of evidence uh, led by anti-capitalists, including in the climate movement, the goal is not only to restrict individual freedom, but the actual goal is to reduce our standard of living. I mean, let me point out one aspect that never seems to be noted, and this is a very different kind of anti-capitalist movement. You know, in the past, they weren't fighting economic growth, but they were focused on redistributing the benefits of that growth. Now, juxtapose that with today's anti-capitalists. They are actually focused on reducing growth itself, or in the case of emerging markets, preventing growth from happening, while lowering the standard of living for everyone. Well, as the various COP and World Economic Forum meetings suggest with their private jets and luxury hotels. It's not quite everyone they were trying to lower the standard of living for. But there's no shortage of statements from today's climate change activists talking about reducing our lifestyle. I mean, it could be you got to eat less meat, you got to travel less, maybe vacation closer to home, if at all. you got to live in a smaller home. Anything and everything to cut back our carbon footprint. Cutting back our standard of living is the very essence of that. I mean, the climate agenda has already proven to lower the standard of living wherever it's been adopted. I mean, think about Germany. Nearly a quarter of the manufacturing base has left the country. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, for example, where the climate agenda devastated the middle class and the poor thanks to devastatingly high energy costs that also push the price of fertilizer higher and food. I mean, you want more evidence of the direct correlation between freedom and economic prosperity? Then look at the standard of living in countries with the most freedom for those with the least. And we've got the latest freedom index compiled by the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute found that the average per capita income for citizens of countries ranking in the top 25% in terms of freedom was about 47,000 and change US dollars. While the per capita income in those countries ranked in the bottom 25%, just over $14,000. As for the uh, being a political issue, well, of course it is. To a great extent, it defines politics today. One side favors more government intervention, along with more restrictions on individual freedoms. I mean, Canada's part of that group, New Zealand, Australia, Ireland, others in the EU, who are pushing significant restrictions on free speech, along with restrictions in areas like how we farm, 
to what cars we're allowed to buy, to instituting digital currencies, which critics say will dramatically enhance their ability to monitor slash ultimately control behavior. Well, on the other side, though, are individuals and parties who push back hard against the incursion of what I call the security state that restricts individual freedom. Now, under the guise of public safety, with the rationale moving from COVID, now on to climate catastrophe. But the pushback is evident in recent elections of like Geert Wilders in, uh, Wilders in the Netherlands or the rise of the AFD in Germany. But the anti-capitalist, anti-freedom, anti-Western values, you know what? Something you're not hearing a lot about is also reflected in the anti-Israel sentiment and the public support in the West for Hamas. Increasingly, the anti-Israel protests, including protests on university campuses, are featuring anti-capitalist, anti-freedom contingents. Look at the signs, communism, socialism, that kind of thing. Now, I appreciate, come on, what's going on in the Middle East is very complex. I just want to point out that it's not a coincidence that the so-called pro-Palestine groups pro-Hamas overlap directly with anti-West, anti-individual freedom agendas, and they're in Canada. I mean, capitalism is founded on individual choice, on individual freedom, on innovation, and it's fostered by the free exchange of ideas. The point is that all of those values are under attack. We should appreciate that. That's the issue. That's the big issue. And they're under attack from outside the country, but within Canada. I'll repeat, within Canada. I mean, you're within your rights to support or vote for an agenda which features less personal freedom, fewer personal choices, but it also features a lower standard of living. And as H.L. Mencken famously said, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it good and hard. My opinion, sitting on the sidelines is no longer a choice. As I said, great show for you. I want you to stay with me right now. Coming up, we're going to announce our person, persons of the year. I wait all year for this, and I'll just give you a little intro here. Blacklock's Reporter was founded 11 years ago by a group of six independent journalists, and they, they focus on really what's going on, the nitty-gritty of Ottawa. And they look at the Senate, House of Commons committee meetings, testimony, reports, federal communication, documents. Uh, in short, they do a heck of a lot of work that maybe the mainstream media doesn't have the time anymore, or maybe they're not interested, not the money, whatever it is, it's an essential service. I think they do a brilliant job of actually bringing forth information. Otherwise, we in the public would not get to hear or read. And there's so many stories I read with Black Locks reported that I haven't seen elsewhere, but yet they're incredibly important to understanding, as I say, what's going on with our government. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Without Black Locks, we wouldn't have known the size of bonuses, for example, handed out by the CBC management, you know, or the bonuses for federal executives and upper management. You know, it cost us more than $190 million last year. It was Blacklocks who reported that the parliamentary budget officer and keeping us up to date on what he said were happening with interest charges on the federal debt, you know, a shocking increase there, more than a double. And when it comes to reporting, like on the truckers' convoy, I mean, nobody followed and reported on that or the testimony at the Emergency uh, Act inquiry more thoroughly. And I'll tell you, without them, I think we literally would have had very little idea of what really happened. Well, I think this is just me saying it, but maybe because it was a bit embarrassing to the main mainstream media. But they are a valuable tool for helping Canadians understand what's going on. And it takes dedication, determination, takes courage. So many stories, important stories. Uh, which is why I'm pleased to announce that after a lot of talk and deliberations, we are absolutely unanimous that my 2022, uh, 23 rather, excuse me, 2023 Money Talks Person of the Year are the people at Blacklocks. And I'm thrilled to welcome the publisher right now, Holly Doan. Holly, congratulations. I, I, I am such a big fan of media that does the job. And let's say I'm a very harsh critic of media that doesn't, because I think the opportunity is incredible and the importance. Uh, it's one thing I certainly agree with the prime minister on when he says, in a democracy, great media plays a phenomenal, pivotal role. Thank God Blacklocks is there to do it. And it's so deserving of our persons of the year. Well, thank you, Michael. Your, your words are very kind. You know, I think that everybody... Um, 
gets up every day and likes to think that the work they do matters to somebody, mm-hmm. to somebody. We like our work. We love our work. And we think that we're filling a hole uh, that's needed. And But, you know, Ottawa is not an effusive town. <laughs> so maybe it takes somebody like yourself from outside the center to say such kind things. But truly, uh, we are deeply, deeply honored. Well, a more informed public is how you protect democracy. And unfortunately, we've been in a period where the government narrative have been dominant, whether we're talking about COVID, we're talking about the truckers' convoy, but so many other issues. I don't want to restrict it to that. I'm just wondering, though, when you guys sat back and said, let's start this project, you know, what did you see in the media landscape that was missing? that all of you could be gainfully employed in other areas of the media or other media uh, producers, and you chose to do this on your own, which is, as I say, it takes courage to do that. I think we were a little bit nuts, actually, now that I look back on it. Uh, we were launching a news website that was paywalled in the teeth of a media recession, and we had no idea how bad it was going to get. None of us did, yeah. right? But... So it was a little bit um, personal and aspirational, of course. We wanted, we thought there was an absence of the fine details of the way we're governed. Uh, That is, you elect a member of parliament, you send a heck of a lot of money to Ottawa, but not many fine details on how we're governed or shipped back to Canadians to read and to assess whether programs worked, whether the money's being spent the way they think it is. So so that was the aspirational part. Uh, The personal part, Well, you know, you get to a certain vintage, Michael, and you've done everything you wanted to do. Uh, We had been national news reporters. Mm -hmm. I had been a foreign bureau chief in China. I had done documentaries. We had covered legislatures, uh, local news in four provinces. So at some point, as we saw the the dawn of uh, digital news, we thought, okay, there's something we haven't done. Mm -hmm. And in 2012, when we started in the United States, That was known as the year of the paywall because about 180 media weekly and daily newspaper properties in the United States put up paywalls in 2012. So that told us that was probably the way it's going. Now, at that time, our betters all said we were crazy. You're nuts. You can't paywall it. It has to be free. Then you'll get lots of clicks and then you'll get all this advertising. Mm -hmm. But when you're a small business, and maybe a lot of your listeners will know this, you don't have a lot of time or money to speculate on what might work. You need to pay the grocery bill this Friday. So in the beginning, it was really pay as you go. It was out of the trunk of our car. And if in the first week we only got one subscription or two, then that's we're just going to rely on our savings until things turn around. Did we think it would take six years to turn around and now we're in entering our 12th year no but too late to turn back now yeah well to me though the quality of the work is what justifies paying you know i i was an early subscriber because i couldn't get that i couldn't get that information elsewhere though and you know i talk about taxes i talk about finances the government takes the huge chunk from our paycheck very relevant to how people's lives go you know especially now we're so talking about cost of living all the time etc etc exactly what you've outlined but to me uh you know there's challenges in the mainstream media that i appreciate but you know what if you produce stuff that people want uh, a success story like black locks or we see others on substack you know yeah it was certainly worth paying for well look at it this way i mean if you were going to pay for black locks and shell out money and you could get the very same information if from news conferences or question somewhere else for free or cheaper, well, our, our business wouldn't have lasted a year. So in a way, the pressure of having to be different forced us to break stories or to find information. We don't have the luxury of saying, of mailing it in today and saying, well, we'll just tell you what happened in question period because there's, there's 10 other guys doing that. So mm-hmm. it meant that we taught ourselves over the decade or so about something called document journalism that perhaps we didn't even understand when we started. Well, the work ethic that goes into it, come on, like, let's go have a good time. We're going to read the minutes of a meeting, you know, (laughs) like, like I figure for my subscription, I'm paying you less than a hundredth of a cent 
<laughs> you know, an hour. I mean, it just takes. Well, imagine, well, that's imagine the, the guy watching three committees at once. Yeah. And it, it's just uh, that's what blows me away. And there's no way, despite my level of interest, there is no way that I can perform those tasks. You know, I'm going to sit down. Yeah, look, at, look at you. You'll know this. If you're an expert, as you are on some subjects, and then you read about that topic, you already know a lot. Mm-hmm. So over, over 10 years, we were able to build a body of information about various topics. And so it's not like you drop into a committee meeting from scratch and say, yeah. hey, what's going on here? You've been following that story for maybe since the government was uh, the government started in 2015, right? It, yep. it, information builds on itself. You, you could never stop, though, because you can't start from scratch. Let, let's talk about some of the, you know, a couple of things happened. And, and again, I get your perspective on it, but I, I, it certainly made an impact. And we talked about it on Money Talks when, you know, Black Locks was sort of escorted out of the parliamentary, you know, press gallery. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented. And uh, I just had to read into a little vindictiveness on the part of some people there, you know, for the stories you broke, you don't have, you're not there to make friends. You're there to represent your audience, you know, and that's what I think is missing in, in much of the coverage. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm saying, I'm saying that, but I mean, it was outrageous. And I sort of thought, is that me? Did you at least go back home and think we must be doing something right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know if you're doing it exactly right, but uh, the case of which you speak was unprecedented, yes. Never in the 130, 40-year history of the Canadian Parliamentary Press Gallery mm-hmm. has there ever been a code of conduct created for the sole, sole purpose of evicting one person or organization. Um, I'm going to be a little bit cagey in what I say here because, mm-hmm. Michael, this is before the courts. And we expect documents are being exchanged right now. We will be going to discovery in June and expect a a judge to decide whether the press gallery followed its own bylaws in creating special rules for certain organizations. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, let me give another one then. And that is, uh, you know, the director of communications for the Bank of Canada said, don't take questions from Blacklocks. Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I read that. At Black, from Blacklock's reporter, and I was outraged, like really outraged. These people are public servants to the Canadian public. You know, it's the Bank of Canada, for goodness sakes, and they're saying, or, or somebody there, the director of communication said, we're not taking questions from these people because we don't like the questions. You know, are you kidding me? You know, we've been in and around Ottawa for a long time. I first came here for CTV News in 1993, and back in those days, you could pick up the phone and get um, an associate deputy minister or a director on the phone to explain something. Now we have the communications industrial complex, an army of thousands of communications staff are there to shield the government from the media. Ironic because the media is tiny, (laughs) but I think, well, you know, maybe we'll take it as a compliment. They're scared of our questions. And I, I think that's the fact. Did, did Buddy know that the recording was on when he foolishly advised the deputy governor that they wouldn't be taking any questions from Blacklocks? Um, no, he didn't know. And I bet you he wishes he had uh, checked to see if we were on the line. But that's not unusual. Uh, the industrial complex also doesn't answer questions that we get. they get from us by email. Um, the uh, communications industrial complex stands in the road at press conferences and makes sure, along with the press gallery, that Blacklock's questions come dead last always every time, if we even get on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, uh, we're going to take that as an opportunity. That means we're not going to go to your news conferences because really, those are talking points. Mm-hmm. Like we are, Our stories come from documents. If we have somebody's email that we got through access to information, we already know what you're doing, what you're thinking. We don't have to hear the minister spin a line. If we have uh, a regulatory impact assessment analysis from the department, we don't have to cover the minister's news conference because we know what the department has told him. And there, it's better information than what you get from the politicians. Nothing against politicians. We love politicians. We think that they are some of the brightest and best hustlers from their small towns. Uh, the, the army of communications people that stands in the way of all media I think many days that they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They are contributing to the death of media. 
And, and I think they're contributing to the death of uh, at least uh, confidence in government. And that's just, you know, Holly, that's a big, that's probably my overriding uh, uh, analytical framework. Yeah, if you if you think about it, we accept paper currencies because we have confidence we can exchange it. We have over 150 countries. You don't do that right now. You know, it's not something that doesn't happen. You know, confidence in the bond market, that kind of stuff. So I think it's a much more serious issue when they erode confidence by snowing me the whole time. I just feel constantly disrespected. You know, do you really think, in fact, in fact, I've got a shocking stat on that coming up. But it's like, do you really think we're that stupid? And I don't know the answer um, if they're that stupid or think I am, but uh, yeah. Um, I, well, you're not stupid, but I do think they think the media is that stupid. Mm-hmm. But listen, listen, all the people uh, who were seasoned reporters uh, from since the 90s are all gone. Mm-hmm. They're all dead, laid off or pensioned off. And apprenticeship is apprenticeship is the journalistic system. Journalists can't learn what they need at Toronto Metropolitan University or at Carleton and then step into the toughest beat in the country, which is Ottawa, and expect to know how it's done. You have to spend a lot of years covering school boards and town councils and legislatures and uh, or on a beat. And I think that the reporters in Ottawa now who are, you know, not more than two, three years out of Carleton University are, are easy, are easily manipulated by, by the communications industrial complex. Uh, let me finish this with one thing, because it's a story that you guys, it was, it was dear to our heart. We've been chronicling, of course, uh, you know, governments are desperate for money. Wouldn't matter who's there now. So governments are desperate for money. And so where do Canadians have money? Well, we've got it in two things, pensions and real estate. And so we've seen, depending on the province you live in, this escalation of real estate taxes. Now, it could be levies and that kind of stuff, or it can be more aggressive. Uh, like you go out to British Columbia, they have a speculation tax now, which their own partner in the government at the time, the Green Party, said has nothing to do with speculation. It's a cax grab. Uh, I can go on and on. But I want to come to a story you guys talked about, and then right away, talk about my ears perked up. You talked about the you know, behind the scenes talk about a home equity tax. Are you kidding? <laughs> right. Well, that, the, the word, by the way, the words home equity tax, that was coined, coined by our reporter, Tom Korski. Mm. That language you're using, we were the first to use that language to describe what they were doing. Listen, you will know that the, um, this last 20, 30 years, has been a boon for baby boomers who had real estate. It was an unprecedented ramp up in value of real estate that Canada had never seen before. So if you were, you know, a worker bee and you had your stucco bungalow in Edmonton and you worked hard, you paid it off. And now it's worth three times what you paid for it, more than that. So it in the government in uh, failing to keep up with the demand in housing, uh, sees that money sitting there. sees that delicious pot of money sitting there and sees that as an opportunity to uh, even out the playing field in terms of purchasing of houses. So what happened was they, the CMHC, which is the mortgage and housing corporation who was, their job was a, a, a lender. That was their job, but now they see themselves as a housing advocate. And so they gave a quarter million dollars to your friends out there at Generation Squeeze at the University of British Columbia to come up with a, a, a antidote for this problem. And their, their remedy was going to be a tax because as Paul Kershaw from UBC said, that seniors had amassed this wealth by, quote, sleeping and watching, te- watching TV. So that had not been reported. And after we reported it, the, the blowback was Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Two ministers, then Housing Minister um, Ahmed Hussain, and then Finance Minister Bill Morneau, said in the House after weeks of blowback, read my lips, no home equity tax. But you better believe that that blew a hole in the side of their plans for housing. Yeah, I certainly do believe that. And that's just another, you know, that's a great example, as I say, dear to our hearts, uh, really, of what Black Locks does. It's without that, you don't know about those things. And there's, there's many, many other examples. I can go on here, but I'm just, that's a great example of the role 
that Black Locks play, uh, plays, and it's a unique role. And that's why I do recommend straight out that people should subscribe to Black Locks. Go to Black Rocks Reporter, and it's Black Locks apostrophe S there, blacklocksreporter.ca. And support, you know, I would say support uh, media, support independent media, but me media that does a great service to Canadians. So, Holly, I want to thank you uh, for myself and all of my friends who love Black Locks. You're very kind. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and I love talking to you. Totally deserved. Persons of the year on Money Talks. As I say, absolutely what we're on about here, thanks to Black Locks reporter Holly Doan is the publisher. Time now for the quote of the week. I think it's fair to say that most people kind of have a tendency to sit back or keep their heads down and say nothing, even in the face of an agenda that challenges their core values. Many choose safety over taking on battles that seem, maybe at the time, maybe a little small, not worth the risk. Uh, but threats to freedom of speech, writing and action, though often trivial in isolation, this is what Orwell warned often trivial in isolation, are cumulative in their effect, and unless checked, lead to general disrespect for the rights of the citizen. I think that's sort of the broad context I've got for this week's quote of the week. It's by Harvard law professor Mark Ramsayer, who wrote an email to his Harvard list, but we have permission to use it, in light of the anti-Semitism, uh, the de facto censorship, the extremism on campus. And he wrote in quotes, Harvard is a vastly less tolerant place when I first, than when I first arrived in 1998. The intolerance is a function of an increasingly large fraction of our colleagues, and we, the rest of the Harvard faculty, let it happen. The cancelling, the punishments, the DEI bureaucracy, the DEI statements, the endless list that we could all recite, all this happened on our watch. We saw it happen, but we did nothing. We were too busy. We were scared to speak up. We, we on the faculty, let Harvard become what it is. The Harvard that we have is the result of our own collective moral failure. The alumni who are furious are not trying to turn Harvard into something we don't want. They are trying to rescue Harvard from what we've let it become. We as a faculty failed. This is why the alumni are speaking up. I hope there's a lesson in what's happened there and other faculty, other universities, et cetera, that most of us stayed silent. We let it happen. We let some of these massive changes take place. You know, last week I talked about the shock that at least I think most of us felt with the blatant anti-Semitism on display on university campuses and in Canada as a whole. It happened right in front of our eyes. We had lots of warning, but most of us refused to do anything or weren't paying attention. My question continues to be, so what's the next thing we're not paying attention to that will wake up one day and shock us? Will it be formally censoring opinions that don't mirror the government narrative? I often wonder, is there anything close to a wake-up call, especially when it comes to the attack on our personal freedoms? Well, maybe Harvard gives us reason to ponder. Very pleased to welcome back Don Vialo, timingthemarket.ca. You can find him there. But uh, Don, I, I was looking forward to this because you probably didn't hear this a few weeks ago. I said on the air that I couldn't believe that the Iowa caucuses are now just a few weeks away for the presidential election. Then we get full swing primary, full swing into Super Tuesday. I think it's the first week of March. I mean, in other words, it's election season. And of course, you study with all of your work the tendencies for markets, all sorts of markets. Is there a cyclicality? Is there a seasonality to it? So I'm going to start right off with this. Tell us a little bit about a presidential year for, I know it's broadly speaking, the markets. Yeah, the U.S. presidential cycle is really coming in once again. Uh, just to look at uh, what you mentioned, but the uh, different events coming up during the next few weeks mm -hmm. related to the U.S. presidential election. Historically, in the first three months of the fourth year of the presidential cycle, which is coming up very shortly, that's when we normally have a brief, shallow correction. Lots of political rhetoric, which causes people to be a little bit concerned. But this tends to be a short-term event after the, about the middle of March, when all the uh, initial uh, 
information comes out about the elections, then we have a history of seeing both U.S. and Canadian equity markets moving significantly higher throughout the rest of the year. Well, your work uh, on timingthemarket.ca recently, well, not recently, going back a full year, predicted that the third year of a four-year presidential cycle, in other words, 2023, would actually end very strong. And that's exactly what we've seen. Yes, that's been amazing. Uh, so far, the S&P 500 is up about 24% year mm-hmm. after over year. The Dow is up about 13%, and the TSE composite is up about 7%. That's typical of what happens in the third year of the U.S. presidential cycle. So, again, we should be looking for in the first, uh, what, uh, three to six months. Don't be surprised, especially after this move. It makes sense that we might slow down a little bit here. You might digest some of it, as you say, as the political rhetoric heats up, especially over the first three months of the primary season. That's correct. Historically, the reason for the strength in the third year is the president does all kinds of things that he wanted to do. He completes his mandate in the fourth year, which is coming up next year. That's when the president offers all kinds of uh, outlooks for the next the following year. And you can expect to see Biden doing that coming into uh, the springtime. But historically, even though we get that little bit of a uh, correction in the first three months of the fourth year of the, of the presidential cycle, the end result is very, very positive. Historically, the S&P 500 has gone up 8%, and so has the TSE composite gone up 8% during the fourth year of the presidential cycle. Uh, let me backtrack a bit because, of course, we're in the Christmas season. You know, I, I think most of us have heard of that, at least that phrase, Santa Claus rally. Uh, how valid is that? Uh, it, does it give you any indication that uh, influences maybe overall decisions on the equity markets? It's amazing. The strongest period uh, for both the U.S. and Canadian equity markets is from December 21st to December 31st. That's 10 trading days. Mm-hmm. On average, the TSE composite and the S&P 500 go up 2% per period. And it's been very consistent. For example, in the case of the U.S. markets, that scenario has developed in nine of the last 10 periods. So very strong period of time. And there's a reason for it. See, that's when uh, major brokers come out with their predictions for the following year. Mm-hmm. It's also a, it's a joyous time for people. People are in a good Christmas uh, mood. And this year in particular, there's a very good chance that it's going to happen once again. Uh, during the last couple of weeks, major brokerage in both U.S. and Canada come out with their predictions for the year 2024. And they are bullish. Most of them mm-hmm. are looking for significant upside moves in both the TSE composite and for the, uh, the S&P 500. Prediction for the S&P 500 is that we will see 5,100. And for the TSE composite, we will see 22,500. Wow. Wow. So, so we got the takeoff point right now with the Santa Claus rally, then a little slowdown uh, traditionally in that first three months. But the overall, that uh, presidential year is a strong one. I just want to make sure people got the message. Now, let's break it down a little bit. And I want to go to some individual sectors. And, you know, it's always of great interest to people when you start talking about gold or gold equities. and what do you expect that way? Yeah, the year 2024 is expected to be what I call a golden year. It should be a time when people owning gold and gold stocks are going to be happy campers. Uh, usually on a seasonal basis, gold and gold stocks bottom right around the middle of December, and their best sweet spot is right through until about the first week in April. That's getting lined up very, very nicely in a number of ways. Uh, one of the indicators I use to say whether or not this is going to happen this year is I, I look at the performance of gold versus gold stocks. If gold stocks are outperforming the price of gold, that's a very good sign that the seasonal trade is going to work. And guess what? Gold stocks are significantly outperforming the price of gold right now. A good sign that we will see the move in gold and gold stocks coming into the spring. Well, as you say, an interesting indicator. And we've certainly seen, you know, the other thing I always remind people that if you look around the world, we've certainly seen more bullishness. I mean, yes, uh, whatever gold is trading at today, but of course, in other currencies, it's been very positive too. So in that, so as you say, I want to just come back and reemphasize. So you're looking for a big year in gold. Yes, uh, an expectation that we will see gold reach about $2,400 US. And of course, in Canadian terms, that's closer to, uh, 
I guess about over 3,000. So we're going to get a good move in terms of Canadian dollars and U.S. dollars. Remember, this is not just for uh, the Canadian and uh, U.S. markets. It's right around the world. Anything mm-hmm. related to gold, you can see uh, going significantly higher. Um, this is going to sound not related, but it is in a moment. Uh, what about the Canadian dollar? Because I'm wondering, okay, if I'm going to purchase, there's lots of ways you can purchase, as you say, uh, whether, you know, gold bullion through Canadian U.S. exchanges, but, you know, obviously stocks or ETFs, all of that. You know, if I have a choice between doing that in Canada or the U.S., do, do you have a preference at this point? Uh, really a reflection of what the different currencies are going to do? Yeah, really, it doesn't really matter too much. Although, historically, the gold in terms of Canadian dollars have done better in the springtime uh, up to April than they are in U.S. dollar mm-hmm. terms. So uh, that's a good sign. Remember, there's lots of ways of investing in gold, too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for example, the easy way is, hey, it's, it's, it's Christmas time. Buy your honey, uh, some <laughs> old jewelry. That's the easy way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, and and the- I will probably have a lot of people. Excuse me. Sorry, Don. We'll probably have a lot of people putting their hand up on that regard. (laughs) I hope so, because this is the time to do it. Uh, Also, in terms of uh, securities that trade on exchanges, uh, most actively traded uh, uh, gold bullion is in the U.S., symbol is GLD. Uh, You can buy all kinds of gold equity ETFs in the States. Uh, The most actively traded ones are GDX and GDXJ. J stands for junior. And in Canada, the easy one is just to remember XGD on the Toronto Exchange. Uh, any one of those uh, exchange-traded funds will give you an opportunity to fully participate in the gold trade for this uh, this summer. Uh, let me shift gears because time's always short and just talk about uh, seasonality with oil. Yeah, fascinating. Historically, the price of oil bottoms right around now and creates a, a bit of a base building pattern. And then by... January, February, it starts moving higher. Uh, this year, it seems to be trying to do that once again. We have the early fo- uh, formation of a base building pattern just during the last few weeks. It's not there yet, but we're getting close. So uh, be aware that we are going to have a seasonal trade in the oil and oil stocks between now and, say, uh, uh, next uh, April. So get lined up for a, an interesting trade in the energy sector. It seems like a great reason that people could go to timingthemarkets.ca too, because of, no, I'm being serious because it would be, you know, your constant update when you're looking, as you say, that oil market's on your radar now. So now you'll look for different developments to pull the trigger or not. Yeah. Stay tuned. What we do on our site is we uh, score each of the sectors, whether it be gold or oil Mm -hmm. or their equities. And if the scores start to go higher over a period of time, and that's a sign that you want to be more interested in those sectors. So, for example, the scores can go from minus six to plus six. Uh, recently, we've seen uh, the golds starting to sh- show some nice recovery. Some of the, for example, the gold bug index, uh, my current rating is four, which means it's getting closer and closer to the highest level it could be. You want to get into uh, these securities as the score goes higher, because that's an indication that the technicals and the seasonalities are getting better and better. Well, as I say, people should go to timingthemarkets.ca. Don, I want to thank you for taking the time and tell you and put you on the spot right now. We're talking again in 2024. We'll get an update from you. Looking forward to it, Mike. Great stuff. Don Vialo, timingthemarket.ca. I mean, has there been a bigger topic this year than interest rates or mortgages? And by the way, I'll talk mortgages in a few minutes with uh, with Ozzy Jurek. But, uh, you know, it's been what's on people's plate because of the amount of money we've borrowed, because of the cost of living, because of other pressures. So I'm going to bring Michael Levy in right now. Mike, the debate still rages about, of course, what the Bank of Canada is going to do. But let me just start with something you said a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you said, let's make sure we always make a distinction between what's going on south of the border economically, which is much stronger, and what's going on in Canada. So be careful of taking something from the U.S. and applying it directly to what's going on in Canada. 
Absolutely, Mike. And the Consumer Price Index, which came out this past week, rose 3.1% in November. It's the same as it was in October. Uh, expectations were 2.9%. Mike, the Bank of Canada has given us every indication that the back of inflation has been broken. That's where the jawboning has been. And the talk is of interest rate cuts in 2024. But the bank continues to stress it will be a long and bumpy road. And there's parts of the dialogue that have been left out in most discussions. And I think that's what we want to talk about. Um, the inflation rate was moderately disappointing to analysts who were expecting it a little lower. But um, the fact is, and this comes from Douglas Porter, one of our favorite analysts at BMO, we still have an inflation flight uh, you know, in our hands or on our hands, and that's something that's got to be beaten before the bank is going to get serious about cutting rates. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as convinced of the inflation as the cost of living, and I continue to remind people to make that decision. Like, if we doubled the price of carrots, uh, you know, that would be 100% inflation. But if the next month it didn't move, and the month after it didn't move, and the month after it didn't move, well, that's called zero rate of inflation. It depends what we're comparing to. And for example, you know, this month's inflation number really influenced by the jump in mortgage payments. But, you know, we're going to now catch up to the mortgage increases, uh, you know, that we had. So that we're, you know, for compared to last year, it was still in the increasing stage. We kind of plateaued, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, look at what the March numbers are. March compared to March might be zero increase because that but rates were already elevated. I think I was just confusing in what I just said, Mike. The point is, it depends what you're comparing to. Yeah, Mike, absolutely right. And, um, you know, we, we can talk about following uh, interest rates in the first and second quarter of next year, but I'm going to come back to it and I will rephrase it. We still have an inflation fight on our hands, which means, as you said, even if inflation doesn't go up, we still have an inflation fight in our hands because we just don't want it not to go up. We mm -hmm. want the inflation to come down. We actually want the price of goods and material and services to come down. And, um, you know, we don't have the economy here in Canada that they've got in the U.S. Uh, and so we can't compare apples and apples. But I think one of the largest overwhelming pressures on consumers here in Canada uh, from the higher interest rates is household debt. And I, we don't hear that mentioned very often as a percentage of disposable income. That is not confusing. What's your household debt as a percentage of the disposable income you have in your household? It's at all-time record highs of 15.2% per capita. But, Mike, that's part of the overall problem also. Yeah, and I think that's on the people in the camp that say the economy, consumer spending is going to slow down. There go, you'll be able to, inflation will come down. There go, they'll be able to lower rates. I think that's the essence, especially when you consider, again, I think mortgage renewals are a big story that is going to continue. Even if, you know, mortgage rates are falling right now. I'll talk more with Ozzy about that. But mortgage rates are falling, but nowhere near where they were when people took out those mortgages in 2020, 21. So it's going to be more money for mortgages. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, that'll reduce consumer spending, as you're alluding to, Mike. So, yeah, that's the big debate. It's still ongoing right now is really where will inflation head? Uh, where's the economy going? But as you said earlier, the consensus is that it'll give them some room to lower rates. Well, Mike, j just apropos again what you said, mortgage rates for those renewing next year who got their mortgages way down at, let's say, lower basement rates are going to be 30% higher. Well, just think of average household. Average, I know, is a big, you know, it's a long yeah. word, a wide word at what's average, but 30% more. Well, these are people, A, that are going to have to come up with the money, but B, are not going to have money to spend elsewhere, which is not going to help our economy. So consensus, rates will probably start to fall in April, but it will be a slow and arduous process until inflation makes a marked move lower to the desired 2% in both Canada and the U.S., and it's that journey that's going to be difficult. Yeah, well, that's what we'll be here to chronicle, Mike. In the meantime, I wish you and your family a great holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, everything. Just enjoy yourselves, and we'll talk next week. Because, hey, I'm putting you on the spot. Mike Levy, next week, I want to hear your top story of the year from 2023.
and Mike, to you and your family also, and to Grant and Dustin and the whole group, have a really good holiday. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Got to thank Environment Minister Stephen Guibault, Anita Anand, President of the Treasury Board, who when the government announced this week that all vehicle sales are going to be either electric or hybrid by 2035, well, she stated in quotes, we're making electric vehicles more affordable and accessible for all Canadians by ensuring new vehicles are clean and green. Come on, clean and green? That's the kind of thing you take a sip of coffee, you read that, and you spit it out. I mean, come on. The global mining and mineral sector uses 40% of all industrial energy, and that's coal, you know, oil, natural gas. But we would need an incredible expansion to meet these needs. Uh, Wood McKenzie's a consultancy. They think more than a trillion dollars is going to be needed invested globally in energy transition metals over the next 15 years to meet the decarbonization targets. And yes, Canada is well positioned. I mean, we've got cobalt, nickel, copper, lithium, graphite, rare earths. But what's overlooked is that it takes such a long time to get this stuff. I mean, you've got exploration, permits, logistics, infrastructure to get a mine going. But of course, you're going to get opposition along the way. And of course, that's why you see so many mines developed in emerging markets because the regulations are lax. It's not clean and green. And lax environmental standards don't do it justice if we're talking about the nearly 100% of rare earths that are refined in China. Does the federal government really not know that 70% of the world's cobalt, for example, that are needed for electric vehicles, well, it comes from the Congo and its horrific child labor practices. Here's one more thing I want to throw at you, though. Uh, the Liberal-appointed Environment Commissioner just released a report, Emission Reductions Through Greenhouse Gas Regulations, that says that the government actually has no clue at the actual impact of policies like this. I mean, no clue. Billions spent on subsidies for the rich and middle-class Canadians. They don't know what the impact will be. But here's one thing. I'll finish with this. Just so you know, fabricating a typical single half-ton EV battery well, it requires the mining and processing of around 250 tons of material. You know, I mean, you have to look at all of the things, the rock that they've got to pull out, you know, uh, the dirt and the minerals, all of that, just to get their lithium, graphite, copper, nickel, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing clean and green about it. Hey, just a reminder, speaking of this, we'll be talking about this kind of thing at the World Outlook Conference. Uh, February 2nd and 3rd. Uh, I mean, this is one of the key things, is the energy transition, what the impact will be, how we're going to get there, lots of investment opportunities. But really, the key is this, to help protect you from this historic change that we're all experiencing, maybe most of us complaining about, well, there's things you can specifically do. That's what we address at the World Outlook Conference. So for tickets, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button. And just remember, Everyone who buys a ticket in the month of December gets entered in a draw to win a one-ounce uh, gold maple leaf from the Canadian Mint, of course. One-ounce gold maple leaf. Gosh, you have to check every day what it's worth, but we're talking a lot of money on that one. There's a lot of incentive to get involved there, uh, to get involved with this. Oh, well over $3,000 Canadian. Take the opportunity. All you have to do is buy the ticket, and you get entered automatically in the draw. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in here. You know, Ozzy, I think you're talking about the hottest topics in the country over the last several years. And I'm proud of the fact that we started to talk about the impact of the massive increase in population, massive increase, especially in temporary student and work visas and the impact on housing. And I want to come to a couple of those uh, issues, but I want to start with some well, news that I think is good news for a lot of people on the borrowing or the renewal end, and it hasn't sort of filtered through, at least anecdotally, to a ton of people I talk, and I'm talking about mortgage rates. Well, yeah, the interesting thing is that you and I have talked many times that the bond rates determine long-term mortgages and the overnight rate determines short-term mortgages or variable rates. But sort of what the breaking news is, is sort of on the quiet, that the mortgage, that the bond rates have literally crashed. I mean, in the United States, the tenure rate went from five to below four. And in Canada, we followed suit. There's a dramatic difference between the actual inflation rate at around three and, and the bank rate at five. And 
there is something going on, and that is called, we call it the whisper rate. Mike, if you mm-hmm. have a good credit rating, and uh, and then it didn't just, and by that I mean you didn't have just have your TV repossessed, right? You have right, a good yeah. credit rating. You can get, are you sitting down, um, uh, an interest rate, insurance rate, right now, at just around 5%. And I'm talking to Jared Dreyer from Barrico Mortgage, and he thinks 4.9 is the next step. Yeah, and I think it's about what people confuse is that, no, the bank rate has held steady, but the bonds are what set, the, especially like in that five-year mortgage rate you're alluding to, the bonds are what set it. And the bonds isn't waiting for the bank to make. They've, As I talked with Michael Levy earlier, the market's pricing in uh, six different rate drops in the U.S., for example. You know, the Federal Reserve is saying three drops, market more enthusiastic. But so the bond market didn't wait. And presto, as you say, dropped over a percent when you look at like the 10-year, the five years are way down. That's what's produced it. So, yeah, I think that's great news. A lot of people, I mean, renewals are still the biggest issue, I think, uh, facing consumers in, in, in the economy overall when those stats come out. I, I don't think we're coming back to, uh, you know, 1.7, 2%, 2.25% that people got. But they may get some relief in this. Well, they are getting some relief. That's your point, that you're going to be out there sniffing under just on just barely under five but there may be more to go well and rbc lowered it's the first bank this week that actually lowered its stated rate remember the stated rates in the window that nobody pays and then there's a negotiated rate and remember that you have power you can negotiate banks are actually very competitively looking for your business yeah, and as I say, uh, a little bit of good news on the interest rate front, especially if you're looking to get in, but pay attention to the bond rates. That's our message here. Uh, I want to come to something else, though, Ozzy. We've been chronicling it you know, really since October of 2020 when the federal government started to talk about uh, you know, new targets for immigration. And uh, we just got some of the numbers, and I want to make very clear to people, it's not, I don't think the problem is the immigration number near as much as the amount of people that are coming in through temporary visas, whether it's a work visa or student, and the government has no idea, has no target until after the fact. That's when they find out. And man, we just got some of those, uh, those uh, population growth numbers. Yeah, it, it, it's my eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> eyeball ball. Falling out. Yes. Stats Canada said we had in the quarter from July to October 430,000 people coming. And that's the highest quarterly rate since 1957. And Mike, more than 1 million people were added during the first nine months of 2023, which is higher than any other full year period since 1867. So never mind immigration, massive immigration. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I keep an eye on the StatsCan gives us a population clock, you know, on a momentary basis. And you just watch it just click up. And I know we're over about 725,000 since we crossed that 40 million mark June 20th this year. I mean, that's when that big bell went off crossing 40 million, man, as you say. But that's that's quite something. One million people added in the first nine months of 2023. Wow you know, biggest since Confederation. And of course, they all got to live somewhere. Yeah. And then the other thing is with 151,000 people going to BC in the nine, nine months. Now think about this 151,000. If 10% of them had some money for a house, that would be 15,000 transactions. If it's just 10%. If of the million, only 1% had enough money, that's 10,000 transactions. It will make some sort of a difference. And again, because if it's not a house purchase, then we're looking at the rental squeeze, you know, and, uh, you know, there's no light in the horizon. I guess the other side of the numbers is people have to be clear that we have guaranteed ourselves a housing problem, uh, whether it's affordability, but definitely when it comes to rentals, because, again, you look at the housing starts numbers and they're not even in the ballpark of the amount of people we've, uh, that are coming in. And again, I want to point the finger at those temporary student and work visas. Yeah, no question about it. Um, but we should also point out, Alberta is a beneficiary. We've lost over 5,000 people from BC to Alberta, more than that from Toronto. And Alberta is going to have a very strong real estate market because of it, because values go where people go. And a lot of them are saying, let's buy those snowshoes and let's move. Yeah, and well, and again, we've been chronicling Alberta. Uh, I thought there's going to be a direct relationship uh, between the strength of the energy markets, obviously, in Alberta's economy and 
Yeah, it's attracting people. That's something. Hey, let me just finish with this. I'm not so sure if we should uh, what we should bet on here, but I did see that Royal LePage came out with a sort of a price forecast for 2024. Yeah, it's a little eyeball raiser. Single family home stories, 6% in the fourth quarter of 2024. Condos, 5%. And Calgary, a whopping 8%. So, um uh, now, the surprise locally is that uh, Brent Realtor, who is number one realtor in the Fraser Valley, he tells me after the Fed made the announcement, more buyers came out to the open houses. He's had a number of multiple offers. Maybe there's some sort of a psychological effect that also impacted oil pages forecast. Well, we certainly got that last March. If you remember, they sort of froze rates. I think it was that March meeting. And people interpreted that to say, okay, the rises are over. They weren't, but they interpreted that way. And all of a sudden, now spring had something to do, and there's other variables. But, yeah, they popped in. So I, I, I have no doubt that psychology plays a big part because now the consensus is we're not raising, and the debate's all about to what extent we're lowering. So there you go. It's, uh, it's uh, as I say, it looks like a positive backdrop we'll have a look obviously we chronicle it but better still people can go to ozbuzz.ca ozbuzz.ca and uh, just sign up put your letter uh, put your email in so they know where to send the latest ozbuzz ozzy in the meantime i won't be chatting with you before christmas so i wish you and joe and the entire you know jurok clan a very merry christmas Thank you. And the same for you, Michael, in your clan and everybody's clan out in the listening audience. Michael, remember something. We always talk about real estate, but selling real estate is easy. It's like juggling cats while riding a unicycle on a high wire over a shark infested <laughs> moat being whipped by little angels. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Ozzy Jurok, Jurok.ca. I want to go live to the trading desk now and bring in Victor Adair. Vic, there's so much going on, but you know what's interesting to me is the sentiment seems so one-sided. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to find someone who doesn't think interest rates are going down. You know, as an example, yes, there are the odd person, but you know what I'm getting at here, or that X isn't going to happen, or what? You know, man, it seems like one sort of mind meld going on in the markets. Well, it has been an extraordinary move uh, on the stock indices. We've been up for eight consecutive weeks. And I mean, I went back and counted and I did find a place about four or five years ago when we'd done something like that, but not nearly the magnitude of the move. And it has been like just all one way. And speaking of that, it's been in, a, in, a, in effect all one market. You know, it's been mm -hmm. how the markets have reacted to what this, they think the central banks are doing and will do. I mean, we still have six cuts in interest rates priced in in the forward market uh, from the Fed, whereas the Fed's kind of made it clear, I think, that they're thinking of maybe three. But for the short term traders, Mike, it's almost like there's a game of um, of musical chairs going on here. There's been so much crowding into this particular trade. You know, we're, we're bullish on stocks. We're bearish on the U.S. dollar. We're bullish on bonds, that sort of thing. Like on Wednesday, we had a little example where the Dow fell 500 points in two hours. And it seemed, I thought, what happened? Did something, was there a piece of news? So I don't want to get too esoteric, but in the options market, you can get even more leverage than you can get in the futures market. And people seeing this, this huge pervasive bullish enthusiasm have been selling short dated puts. That's like free money if the market either stays where it is or goes higher, but if the market starts to back up, all of a sudden you're scrambling, you know, like musical chairs and you, the, the, the negative convexity is the language, like the, the losses just rise exponentially. So I think everybody that's short-term trading in these markets understands it's extremely bullish out there. Like everybody and his dog is in. And if an event comes along that causes the market to back up, it could have a swift correction. Let me let me go to a, even a bigger picture here just for a second here, but I think it's important. What do you think all the things you're looking at? Like I'm looking at gold movement. I'm looking at the Swiss franc at an all-time high. You've been reporting on victoradare.ca. You know, uh, it's not just the Dow Jones. I mean, uh, other indexes are also going up, and I just want to know what you make of that. Hmm. I, I have been 
surprised, honestly. It's been, and a lot, I talk to a lot of veteran traders. I mean, I, I don't talk to the young people because they, they don't want to listen to me, I guess. But I talk to a lot of veteran traders, guys like you and I, who we've all been surprised. This has been an astonishing move. And whether it's in the U.S. dollar falling, gold looks like it's going to have an, uh, you know, a, a close here at the end of the year. That'll be an all-time high year-end close, which will trigger some stuff in models. Uh, I think at the same time with the Swiss franc being so strong, you know, uh, like it's at an all-time high against the euro. And all of the stock indices rising, to me, what this is, it's showing us that the, the, the purchasing power of currencies is going down. You know, you're talking about a bigger picture. I think that's part of what's happening. I mean, do you want to hold a, a whole bunch of paper currency in a, in a vault in your room? Or would you rather own some stock that's going up 50% a, a, a month or something? You know, that's been the sentiment in the market. So... Also been the uh, it's also been the major theme on Money Talks now for three years is would you close your eyes wait five years would you rather have a pile of stuff and it might be wheat it might be oil or would you rather have those paper dollars I mean that literally is my number one theme how to protect that's what you got to do that's what the Outlook Conference is going to be about essentially you know uh, it's that. I just think it's overlooked. Uh, I did a shocking stat last week, if you might recall, that just looked at what does, you know, I think going back to the origination of Canada Central Bank in 1935 and what you could buy for a buck and what it would cost today, you know, that same stuff. And the numbers are shocking. I mean, our, uh, sorry, I'm going to digress one more. I was at the bank the other day and I rarely go like everyone else. It's online, but I, I needed uh, to get some cash for a particular thing. And it wasn't a drug deal. Don't believe me. No, but I was need to get some cash. So they, they say, what do you want? And I said, give it to me in twenties. And it was a few hundred bucks. And it was just to give bonuses to people. I, you know, that have been very kind to me in service sector and stuff. And I just thought, what a farce this is. They're just, you know, like counting it out. It was a few hundred bucks, but it was all these pieces of paper coming at me. And it's just another reminder. It's just BS. You know, the paper's just pure BS. It's what I accept. And what other people accept in exchange for hard goods, you know, and stuff we need, services. And I'm just saying that's so misunderstood. But your point is well taken. The commonality here is that our dollars don't buy as much anymore, whether I'm talking about buying a small share of Apple or other companies or of gold or, you know, I mean, you just go on over time. That's the big challenge. Well, and going forward, um, I mean, one of the reasons I think the currency purchasing power has gone down is because the governments have just given yeah. up on trying to balance the budgets. So, that, And once, once you give up, and at what point do you stop printing? That sort of thing. And when there's more money in circulation, this is the old adage, the, the dollar becomes worth less. Mike, there was a word I got introduced to years ago by a, a veteran trader, and he said, you know, these markets are a casino. And I said, no, no, they're not. I mean, I didn't want to believe that. You know, I wanted yeah. to believe that we were actually doing good stuff and all that. But there, there is certainly an element of casino here where people are passing around a hot potato. You know, you look at what if people spend money on. You know, they got the, some car that paid, you know, a yeah. million dollars for a car or whatever. And on and on. Go, oh, my God. what? Where are we going here? And, you know, we're, we talk about the World Outlook Conference and maybe we're going to be looking ahead. Um, I know that fear sells and a lot of people are trying to scare people these days and saying, oh, yeah, horrible things are going to happen and people are vulnerable to that. But I, I really think uh, the, we could have some big changes next year. <laughs> well, again, what is the theme of Money Talks is I think every single year, but we started in 2019, said, wait till you see 220. And of course, that's when the pandemic hit. And, the, mm -hmm. uh, and then we said, well, wait till 221. And then we said, wait for the monetary crisis to show up, make it more obvious to people by 222. Then we said, oh my gosh, wait till 223. And we had Martin Armstrong tell us, oh yeah, by the way, uh, in 222, first week, there's going to be a buildup in Ukraine, you know, of the, of the military presence of Russia. And then 223 is going to get worse. I'm saying the same thing, Vic. 24 is going to make 23 look tame. You know, 25, that's the period we're in. Yeah, well, I, I can't, 
what can I say? I, I'm not really looking forward to it because I think there's it will be some unpleasantness, but at the same time, you know, we can't avoid it. So try to be prepared or take it in stride or whatever. Well, I think that's the key. And Vic, uh, in the meantime, I invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. We're not giving you any time off for Christmas, by the way. You, you can forget about that. Go to victoradare.ca, and I'll see you next week. I'll get your story of the year or one or two things that come to mind when I say what's the biggest sort of financial event of the year that you thought has sort of reverberations for time to come. And in the meantime, I'll wish you and uh, you and Gina uh, all the best for Christmas. Well, thanks, Mike, and the same to you and uh, all your family and, and all of our listeners. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And how appropriate that I'm going to go to Blacklock's reporter for the help here, our persons of the year, for the facts and information. And I tell you, you won't hear this anywhere else. And, and in this case, I'm talking about the promises surrounding the federal government's new mandate that by 2035, all cars and pickup trucks sold will be either electric or hybrid. And just so you know, right now, I mean, I was looking at the numbers. I think EVs comprise only about 6% of vehicle sales, so there's a long way to go. But taxpayer subsidies through the federal government, along with the government sales pitch that EVs will save people money, are the primary tools to encourage the switch. And if people don't switch, well, it's not going to be voluntary after that. you got a new law, so there won't be a choice. And, of course, that's one of the things that's so contentious at this point. Although it does make the question, by the way, if EVs save individuals so much money, then why does government have to force Canadians to buy them? And P.S., the federal government has done absolutely no cost-benefit analysis on the actual cost of the emissions reductions and what we'll get in terms of emission reductions. But the Department of the Environment released a report this week that refutes Environment Minister Stephen Gibo's claim in quotes, once you drive a car off the lot, the savings on fueling and maintenance costs are enormous. Well, there you go. Well, you know what? The Department of the Environment's report says no, not so. I mean, while the impact on emissions aren't clear, they say the cost and the benefits to consumers on that regard are straightforward. The Environment Department's report states, in quotes, incremental zero emission vehicle and home charger costs are forecast to be $54 billion, 2024 to 2050, for consumers who switch to zero emission vehicles. But consumers are expected to only realize something like $36.7 billion in net energy savings over that same period. In other words, you're talking about a net cost of $17 billion. The department study goes on to state, while some electrics may decrease in price, other vehicle types do not reach price parity, like electric pickups or plug-in hybrid cars. The resulting net cost would, in their words, disproportionately impact low-income drivers forced to buy costly new cars. I'm going to repeat that. The result would disproportionately impact low-income drivers' force to buy costly new cars. As we have pointed out, some say relentlessly in my heart, for two decades. Whether you're talking globally or domestically, the impact of climate policy on the poor is regularly ignored. This is just another example. As I said, thanks to Blacklocks, because you're not going to find this incredibly important information on the news or you know, the headlines or the papers, anywhere else. No. In the meantime, that's all the time we have. I wish you a Merry Christmas. And a reminder, if you are looking for a last-minute gift, come on, consider tickets to the World Outlook Conference. There's still time. Just go online, mikesmoneytalks.ca. You know what it is, though? It's a terrific weekend to hang out with some friends, maybe some family. And it makes a difference. I think it's a fabulous gift. But in the meantime, I'll see you next week. You can still check us out on Money Talks Tweets, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. You know, all the latest updates. I'll keep doing it right through every day, including Christmas, including New Year's. I'll find something to post there. But you know what? I'll see you next week for Money Talks Year End Special. Don't miss it. All my best. <music>